Well, it's a, it's a very uh, tragic subject that we're here to speak about today, and I thank the Harari Center, and I, I thank the Atlantic Council for providing this forum. I, I grew up next to a, a um, Syrian family in Anaheim, California, and they would tell me uh, about what uh, happened in Homs. And the reality today is that if we went back through the last 30 days and cataloged uh, the attacks, which Kristen did for me, you had an additional 382 attacks in Syria. The question is, what was the target of those attacks? 90% of the attacks were on markets, schools, and hospitals. And that is no different than the, day than the month before, or the month before that, or the month before that. When we ask ourselves, how is it humanly possible that four million souls have fled Syria? How is it possible that a third of a million people have been killed in the last four and a half years? The answer is that these bombings, these attacks, are relentless. I uh, will just take you back four years ago. We had meetings, and I give great credit here to Elliot Engel. Elliot, was, who's the ranking member on my committee, was the first one who said, and put in legislation, which I supported, but legislation that said, we have got to have a plan here. Because originally when we looked at the crowds marching through Damascus, and many of us remember that night, remember turning on CNN, remember the people saying peaceful, peaceful, as they marched into the street. And we remember Assad's forces opening fire. And at that time, Elliot Engel of uh, the Bronx in New York made an observation that if we did not get engaged, if we did not try to bring order out of chaos, if we did not reach out to those people and try to run interference for them, that Syria was going to devolve, was going to melt into chaos. And the reason he assumed that had to do with the character of Assad, but the character of the son and the brother. And he was absolutely right. And I remember sitting in uh, the, the White House with Elliot Engel as he was making his case, and I was backing his case on this issue. And it's a case now that he's made for four years running. And even when we get uh, the nods, all right, we're going to have a free Syrian army, or uh, we're going to attempt to um, assist, you can tell that the entire bureaucracy is dragging its feet on any such scheme. When we make a pronouncement about the dropping of gas from the sky, and uh, okay, there's been 16,000 barrel bombs during the day, but what happens at night in these neighborhoods? We had uh, testimony from Annie Sparrow, Dr. Annie Sparrow, who works on the ground with these families. At night come the gas attacks. 56 attacks that we have now cataloged, and I think proven beyond a doubt, regardless of what people want to say about it being difficult to figure out who's dropping those out of the helicopters. As I said in committee, 
But during our hearing, only a, or hearings, we've had a whole series of hearings over the years on this. It, again, it is only Assad's forces that have these helicopters. And so it is that during the day, families hide their children in the basements. But at night, when the gas comes down and seeps into the basement, as she stated before the committee, there is no better way than to combine trauma and terror, than gas attacks. And I'm going to save you. I, I was going to talk about the effects of these. I, I won't because we, the people here in this audience know the effects on children of this gas in terms of what it does in the lungs. But the reality is if you're a parent in Syria and uh, you're Sunni and you're in one of those areas where this type of ethnic cleansing is underway, as she stated, there is no more effective way of combining trauma and terror and driving people from their homes. And if you wonder if this is official um, policy of the regime, think for a minute what's happening in Damascus. Think about the, area, the areas of the city that are Sunni, that are being leveled, where people are just being pushed out. It's not just the areas that are in contention. It is an effort that so far has removed some 7 million within Syria from their homes and 4 million pushed out of Syria into Lebanon or Turkey or, or Europe or Jordan. And now we have, over the last few years, an additional force with an additional enthusiasm brought to the front, and that is Hezbollah. And as Hezbollah moves into these areas and quarters there and increasingly brings their families from Lebanon, you can see a process where Syrian families are forced out and the influence of Hezbollah comes in. Not even to get into the Quds forces and their operations throughout Syria which this audience is all too familiar with. And as of this week, a new dynamic, which is the dynamic of having Russia establish itself, not just in its base at Tartus, which is basically taken over, but now with an air base where they're bringing in fighter planes, where condors are landing, where tanks are, and uh, on a daily basis now, tanks and, um, and armored personnel carriers and other pieces of equipment are being moved off besides the, uh, besides the aircraft that they're bringing in. So there was a consensus after the Second World War. There was a consensus on the use of gas. There was a consensus in terms of ethnic cleansing. It's been clumsy to try to, to try in some of these situations for the international community to act. But at least there was that expectation until four and a half years ago that there would be action. That the international community, led by the United States, would step up and would take decisive action in situations where chemical gas was used, or in situations where you had ethnic cleansing.
And now it seems that that has been abandoned. And nature does abhor a vacuum, there's no question. And into this vacuum steps the Quds forces on behalf of Iran, and Iran's cat's paw, Hezbollah, and Iran's cat's paw, Assad. And now Russia, which very recently has found a new reason to ally itself with Iran. And for those of you who, by the way, monitored or followed the negotiations with Iran, it was Russia at the 11th hour that surprised Congress, and I think surprised the administration, by saying, no, no, there is one additional item that has to be in this agreement. The arms embargo has to be lifted. Ask yourself what General Soleimani, Commander Soleimani of the Quds Forces, was doing in Russia a few weeks ago. What type of negotiation was that prior to the Russians coming in and landing near Tartus, Tartus and taking up a position with that airfield? Uh, I, I do believe that it was a blunder in the agreement to lift the arms embargo because that arms embargo is now going to allow Iran to use hard currency and the beneficiary of that hard currency in the minds of Moscow will be the um, military industrial complex there that has a lot to sell Iran besides just the targeting that we know about that they want in terms of how to target ICBMs. There is a whole lot in the way of conventional missiles and rockets. And this takes us to another issue. That agreement that was signed says it is supposed to be five years before the arms embargo is lifted. But Iran took the position last week that they're not bound to that part of the agreement. They won't recognize that part of the agreement because that's in the UN language, the uh, five-year on conventional and eight-year on uh, ICBM, that instead from their standpoint, there is no arms embargo. And they will work now with countries like Russia on this issue. So all of this gives me great concern because it establishes a precedent. And had we four years ago, I believe, before the invention of something called ISIS, had we rallied those forces that represented, frankly, a cross-section of, of uh, Syrian society. I will tell you, I, I sat down with the Alawite business community at the time, and they, one of their representatives said, We're, we've had it. We've had it. We're throwing in with the democratic opposition. Another one said, I'm operating a radio station in the theater. I think it was out of UAE. I forget where. I am broadcasting in to Syria, and I am telling the Alawite people, we've had it with this dictator. We have, to, we have to come together behind a new government. It has to be inclusive government. We are not going to move forward with a policy of just trying to maim and slaughter the majority of our citizens who do not share the belief system, you know, my belief system. We've got to be a pluralistic society. Syria is an educated society. It's a pluralistic society, he said. But we have to have leadership, we have to have broadcasts in, we've got to get rid of this authoritarian regime, and we've got to come together in order to try to apply that pressure.
And now in the wake of all of this, we have such chaos that in one of the most educated societies in the Middle East, we now have ISIS making recruits. Although I must say most of the ISIS fighters come from outside of Syria. For those Syrians in the audience, you know this better than I do. We, we follow these numbers. A <laughs> good number of them come out of Europe. Uh, many of them, 2,000 2, come out of, um, out of Dagestan and in so southern Russia. But um, this is the conundrum we're in today. Along the way, we have held hearing after hearing. We brought Caesar up. Many of you followed either his testimony before the committee or in the Capitol where we had some of his 55,000 photographs. There's one other point I want to make here. When you leaf through those photos, you begin to realize what Caesar told us. Those victims are Shiite and Alawite and Sunni and Christian. Those victims are anybody caught in the web. It was like Joe Stalin's terror. Anyone caught in the web, suspicious, them and their families. And the other odd thing, I've never understood this compulsion of totalitarian societies or regimes, regimes. Why do they number the victims? Why do they stencil those numbers on the forehead or the arm? And yet there again, as you go through those photographs of those victims who died by torture, probably giving up the names maybe of those who were fellow collaborators, but maybe just their neighbors in order to save themselves from the torture, because somehow it just compounded and compounded and compounded upon itself. The other oddity is how many intelligence services Assad works in that society. More than a dozen are out there competing to haul people in. This happened on our watch. But this is happening on our watch. This continues, as I said, this month with 382 attacks on markets, on schools, and hospitals. And so uh, that is why I appreciate the fact that the Atlantic Council has held this forum here today. And my hope is that at some point, we will take decisive action, and my hope is that the international community will move with us. And my hope is that the pressure is applied, and Assad has to go, and there's a consensus on that. And my hope is that there's an attempt again to lay a foundation to bring order out of chaos. But my feeling is that Elliot Engel was exactly, exactly right four years ago, and our failure to act then leaves us with the chaos and the precedent and the 56 gassing attacks which we've withstood up till today. Thank you very much for ha having me. And uh, I don't know if you want to do questions or what's next on the program, Ambassador. It's up to you. If there are any uh, questions that people would like to pose to the chairman. It's not often you get a direct uh, shot at uh, Chairman Royce. Thank you, Chairman Royce. How many of the Thompson would you Syria? We want to thank you and uh, Ranking Member Engel for your support of a no fly zone. Oh, that's good.
good point. For your support of a no-fly zone uh, inside Syria, and uh, I just would like to know um, if your position has changed at all since Russia has gotten involved. Tyler, I thank you for bringing up this point, and this, this is something that everyone should be able to support. Regardless of where you are on the Syrian question, if you're talking to members of the House or the Senate, the de minimis step should be a safe zone, a no-fly zone that protects the Syrian middle class in Aleppo. I mean, these are people who, you know, have to put up with ISIS on the ground and Assad in the air. There is no reason, no reason in my mind, why that should not be enforced. I know the Russian Antonovs. I know some people have said over the years, well, do we really want to chase those out of the sky? Yes, you want to chase them out of the sky. Because if you'd, if you'd chased them out of the zone then, and they're lumbering things. It's, it's not a hard thing to do. And, and you can use allied partners in this too to get the point across. But the, but the point is this. You've got to stop the bomb, bombing on civilians. It is that bombing, especially the gas bombings, that are causing the exodus of people across that northern tier. And while you're at it, you ought to have a safe zone, a no-fly zone on the Jordanian border as well. If, if, if we can get a consensus to move quickly forward with this, if you can press the administration and our colleagues on this. But I, I do think also this takes leadership. And I think the administration has let this go for four years. We've had entirely too many meetings up at the White House with Elliot Engel and I and, and other members pressing this issue. It is time for some leadership on this issue. It is time for a no-fly zone to protect those families and those children before they give up all hope and try to flee. And that is also, I think, um, uh, in, in uh, Annie's view, you know, the doctor that I talked about that was on the ground there viewing this, she said, in her view, that is the reason why millions have fled, all right? Then the other issue is ISIS. And the no-fly zone makes it easier also for us to keep those assets in the air. And we ought to change the rules of engagement on ISIS to make it, you know, three-quarters of the pilots come back telling us, at least, that uh, they have to go through Washington to get the uh, okay to hit those targets. Let, let's do it like the British and the Canadians carry out their operations. You know, let, let's... Uh, Let's be decisive on ISIS, and at the same time, let's operate that safe zone and let's give a break in uh, peace for a while as we try to, to uh, take next steps. That is the most immediate thing we should do, and I thank you for raising the question. We'll take one more question. Yes, miss. Sharon Bovat, voice of a moderate. You brought up the mercenaries, the people that have come into Syria to fight. And it seems like in a lot of the conflicts I'm seeing, we're getting a lot of foreign fighters come into territories. And even America, we have our own um, contractors. And now I'm looking at, I think it's Black, well, not Blackwater, but whatever they are called now, they're in China fighting. But we really need to strengthen our U.S. Army, our, you know, and our own army. And I think with these countries and the mercenaries, is there a way to ban or block these people from coming and we have a no-fly zone, but it's also border yeah. control, getting them out, getting them in. We're and trying, I met with the Turkish ambassador on this issue. We're, we're trying to work with Turkey in order to 
um, better monitor the flights you know that go in because obviously it's it's over the Turkish border that most of these uh, uh, insurgents or um, foreign fighters are coming in. We're also trying to work uh, with our European uh, allies on this issue because uh, a good percentage come from Europe, but it's a worldwide problem now, from Australia to East Asia to Central Asia, it's all over the globe. And it's all over the globe because of the internet. And so when you have a crisis like this, the blowback that occurs, not just from this, but, but uh, from the, the wider radicalization that is occurring in the world today, uh, gives impetus uh, for those forces that uh, want to recruit jihadists and send them into battle. And so, you know, the majority of these, or about half of them, are from even outside the region. So this is uh, an effort where we're, our intelligence services are trying to work closely with foreign intelligence services. We're trying to pass new laws here in the United States. And, of course, continental Europe and the U.K. are doing the same thing, trying to, trying to address these issues. But it's going, to be, it's going to be difficult because you've got a virtual caliphate now on the Internet, right? And that level of recruitment has given us a whole new challenge going forward when it comes to ISIS. Thank you very much. Fred, thanks. Again, for you for bringing us all together today, and Mr. Chairman, thank you. I'd like to pick up on a comment that uh, the chairman made repeatedly because it's what we're all about here at the Atlantic Council. You referred several times, Mr. Chairman, uh, to your uh, colleague with whom you work so in such exemplary fashion from the minority. Uh, we at the Atlantic Council are all about bipartisan strategy work for American leadership and influence in the world with our partners across the Atlantic. Um, and with it, in the Hariri Center, we work in particular um, on problems of the Middle East. In that context, let me do a small commercial, if you would. We have another major event coming up precisely of the kind of, of thing that uh, uh, you would advocate, I believe, Mr. Chairman. Um, we have the Middle East Strategy Task Force under uh, Stephen Hadley, former National Security Advisor of your party, majority party in the Congress, and under uh, the co-chairmanship of Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, uh, from what is now the minority party in the House and the Senate. Um, they are leading the Middle East Strategy Task Force to deal with the full range of issues that the United States and its uh, partners in the region and in Europe must deal with in a strategic, coordinated, uh, focused, well-resourced way. We're looking at important aspects of that strategy. One of them is the refugee crisis, the crisis of internally displaced people. On Friday afternoon, the co-chairs with David Miliband, former Foreign Secretary of the UK, will be uh, holding a discussion on this with um, a Lebanese mayor uh, from Junier, Mayor Frem, who has to help host these uh, refugees from Syria. That is at USIP. I believe it may be sold out, honestly. It is by invitation only. But if anyone here from the media or in the audience is interested in coming, please uh, give your business card to one of the Hariri Center staff, and we'll see what we can do with uh, USIP, which is co-hosting with us. Mr. Chairman, thank you for your work on everything across the board, but particularly on this issue, and for coming today. Fred, thanks again. Frank, thank you very much, and uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Fred Hoff. I'm a resident senior fellow uh, here at the uh, Rafiq Hariri Center of the Atlantic Council. 
first of all, I'd like to thank all of you for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to sit in on what I, what I think is, uh, is really the central matter before us in the Syrian crisis and even the broader Syrian ISIL crisis, and that is the, uh, the protection of civilians. Uh, I was privileged several weeks ago uh, to hear Chairman Royce speak at the Holocaust Memorial Museum when that institution put on a program focusing on the, uh, the photographs of Caesar, photographs from uh, Syrian prisons. Uh, Chairman Royce is a, uh, is a voice of authenticity on this subject, and uh, sir, thank you very much uh, for framing uh, this discussion for us. Obviously, there are many, many, many aspects, many facets of civilian protection in Syria. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on three of them. Medical neutrality, sieges, and barrel bombs. Okay? Our intent here is not to dismiss or downgrade torture, sexual abuse, the recruitment of children, and the like. All of these things are important. All of these things are part of the Assad regime's portfolio of collective punishment against its enemies. The Assad regime is not alone in the commission of war crimes and crimes against humanity in Syria. But it is far and away, far and away, the predominant practitioner um, of, these, uh, of these ugly things. To discuss medical neutrality, we're very pr privileged to have with us Dr. Rola Hallam uh, from the UK. Dr. Rola is a, is a British Syrian. Uh, she is a major voice in the British NGO community. And she was really the central figure of, of an amazing documentary produced a few years ago by BBC Panorama called Saving the Children of Syria. I must say, anyone who has the slightest interest in cutting through the politics of all of this and getting to the heart of the matter, you owe it to yourselves to watch Saving the Children of Syria. It is, it is perhaps the most, uh, the most intense 50 minutes or so that anyone can experience. To discuss sieges, uh, we have, uh, in my opinion, the best, uh, the best authority possible, Valerie Zibala. She's the principal author and researcher behind a landmark uh, recent study entitled Slow Death, Life and Death in Syrian Communities Under Siege. Uh, Valerie is also the executive director of a brand new three-day-old think tank called the Syria Institute. Uh, you're both welcome. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask each of our panelists to speak for about 10 minutes on their, you know, their, their, their findings, their, their major concerns, and their recommendations. Uh, then I'll have a few words to say mainly about barrel bombs and policy options, and then I believe we will 
We will open things up to the audience with a view to uh, wrapping this thing up promptly at, uh, at 1 p.m. So Dr. Rolla, over to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, as, um, as a medical director for um, a Syrian-led NGO called Hand in Hand for Syria, I've had the honor of um, establishing six hospitals in North Syria over the last four years. And when we sit down to discuss where should we locate our hospitals, we don't talk about where is the best access for civilians or what are the best supply lines. We talk about where is the best place or the least place to be bombed by Syrian government airplanes. Where is the place that our hospital will be the safest? If you think about it, it's a shocking question that we should be asking ourselves. We don't make plans for if we get bombed, we make a plan for when we get bombed. In my last visit to Syria, I visited three hospitals. One was then partially destroyed, killing six civilians. And in the other two hospitals I was at, in on the day we were there, two bombs fell next to us, having to evacuate the hospital, though luckily there were no injuries on the day. And that's just in one visit. And this is an ugly reality that occurs all the time, every day. Physicians for Human Rights have been incre incredibly impressive in documenting these um, crimes against humanity. Over 300 hospitals have been attacked, specifically and deliberately targeted. And over 600 doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers have been killed. 90% of these are by the government of Syria, the rest by other armed factions. As Syrian NGO community, we're now under incredible pressure from the Syrian civilians that we serve to speak out. We can no longer bear to bear, bear witness without saying that what's happening in our country is not primarily a humanitarian catastrophe. It is a political and military crisis that is causing this humanitarian catastrophe. The international community's response has sadly been with aid, but food baskets and stethoscopes don't stop barrel bombs falling from helicopters onto our friends and family. Our catastrophe has now metastasized across the globe, and you only see the symptoms of this life-threatening disease in the form of refugees and in the form of terrorists. The United Nations has acknowledged these deliberate and systematic attacks, not just on hospitals, but on schools and on civilians, and has passed a resolution to this effect, but over a year on, nothing has been done to implement this. Last week, one of the Syrian civilians we were handing out food baskets to us said, the humanitarians are fattening up the cows before the slaughter. And that's indeed how it feels at the moment. Syrians say humanity is dead, but actually seeing the response of ordinary people around Europe to the refugees, I say is very much well and alive. What's dead is courageous political leadership Leadership that will stand tall on principles and values rather than shaking their head in muttering that Syria is complicated and completely abdicating their political responsibility. What we need is strong political leadership that will face the root cause of the problem that is happening in Syria right now. Stop this life-threatening, slow bleeding wound that's bleeding dead children onto our shores. That's the sort of political leadership that we need, because Syria is going to go down in the history books as the biggest catastrophe of the century. And as things stand, President Obama will go down as the man who led the, president, uh, who led the American government's response of burying its head in the sand over it. 
but he can change that and he must change that, must truly face the source of this crisis and act to protect innocent civilians right now. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Howard. Valerie. Thank you. Oh. Um, first, I want to thank you and Andrea and the Atlantic Council for hosting this event. Uh, it is an important topic, and I know it's in the news, but not enough and not uh, as much as it should be and as big as it should be and not always focusing on the right things. Um, as Fred mentioned, I'm executive director of the Syria Institute. And our, our goal is to help inform smarter Syria policy options for the government and to uh, help bring a greater level of awareness and understanding to the general public. Because we recognize that more than four years into the war, there are still tremendous information and understanding gaps out there that hinder policymakers from um, standing up courageously in some cases and uh, I think stifle public response the way that uh, the public would respond if they if they saw the things that we see every day. Um, so I was lucky enough to work with the Syrian American Medical Society, which like Hand in Hand does tremendous medical work in Syria and to write a report for them called Slow Death on the Besieged Areas. I wanna tell you a little bit about the situation in the besieged areas and some of the conclusions of that report. Um, for those of you who don't know, hundreds of thousands of Syrians are living under siege uh, the vast majority of them by their own government. Uh, some of them have been besieged for years, since 2012. Daraya, it's a suburb of Damascus, has never been reached with aid. Uh, and so for the way that we define siege, uh, just gonna read the definition that Sam's, that we, we came up with for the report, is uh, Sam's considers an area to be besieged when it's surrounded by armed actors who intentionally block humanitarian access to the civilian population over an extended period of time, resulting in shortages of the basic elements needed for survival, like food, water, and medical supplies. Civilians are not regularly allowed to enter or exit the area, even in medical emergencies. Serious sieges, which deliberately and disproportionately inflict massive harm on trapped civilians, are a method of collective punishment. Uh, this definition is not very different from the UN definition for sieges, but uh, one of the major findings of the report is that UN OCHA, which makes these designations for the UN Security Council, is incredibly um, inconsistent in the way it applies uh, its siege designation. It is manipulating the data, I think, for political reasons. And this is unacceptable. Uh, the reason that we wrote this report in the first place is an acknowledgement by humanitarian groups working in besieged areas that what the UN is, is saying is so far below the actual level of crisis. Uh, direct access on the ground that they don't have, you can see and count many, many more people. So right now, uh, or when the report was published in March, data collection stopped at the end of January. Uh, at that time, the UN statistics were 212,000 people living under siege. Um, through a very open process of data collection where we explained all of our methodology, a conservative estimate we came up with more than 640,000, and that didn't include population figures for 20 besieged areas that we couldn't get good data for. So the number is, is much higher. Uh, just to give you an idea of the scale of the underreporting by the UN, the problem with the besieged areas is that this is an invisible crisis in a way, and it's far from the only one. Uh, people being tortured in the prison, prison systems in Syria, tens of thousands are um, 
more invisible, and we should pay attention to that too. But the siege is a contained problem, and as an invisible problem, it, there hasn't been uh, pressure on our policymakers to make it a priority. So it hasn't been a priority. It's been ignored. It's much easier to ignore, um, to ignore this situation. As you can imagine, we encourage everyone to read the report. Uh, getting clean water is nearly impossible in many of these places. They lack electricity, food, medical supplies are particularly constrained. Um, oftentimes, uh, in order to get out, you have to, you have to bribe, and most people don't have the money to do so. Or we've heard of cases where the Syrian government will let you out if you admit that your family member is a terrorist and have them turn themselves in. So you can buy your way out by sacrificing a young male in your family. Um, and not only is, you know, in, the death, in this report, we catalog everyone who's died under siege that we could find of non-military causes. So starvation, lack of medical care for preventable diseases, uh, died of cold because they can't heat their homes, things like this, poisoned because they're scavenging for food and they eat something toxic. Um, but the people in the besieged areas are also frequently attacked, uh, largely with aerial strikes by the Syrian government. And because they're so contained, it's actually, I think it makes them uh, more vulnerable to attacks with banned weapons, so chemical attacks, cluster munitions. Uh, in the past month, uh, in August, actually, and, and because these attacks happen in besieged areas, it's very hard to get out samples, so the OPCW to confirm that these attacks were chemical weapons is, is it's a safe place to, to drop chemical weapons. So according to the Eastern Ghouta um, Council, that local uh, civilian-led council, they recorded six attacks in August with chemical weapons, four of which they believe were chlorine, but they can't get samples out for testing, and two which appear to be napalm-like substance. And most of you might notice this probably didn't make the news. You probably didn't hear about that. Um, so aid access is very, very low for these areas. The UN uh, submits re requests to the Syrian government to send in aid, which is kind of like asking the jailer if you can, if you can help their prisoners. And uh, as you might imagine, most of them are denied uh, or ignored. And now we have many that are approved, but then in, in, in theory they're approved, but they're not actually followed through on. Um, so the big challenge that this report came out with is, is the UN OCHA's mischaracterization. Uh, it has gotten worse since then, since the report was published. Several days after the report was published, um, we had these striking figure discrepancies. The UN bumped its numbers, uh, besieged numbers for the first time significantly. And that didn't include any of these additional areas noted in the report. If you wanna, just a quick visual aid, I'm a very visual person, to show you how stark this is. This is Damascus. This is from the report. Um, these shaded areas in blue and red are the areas that the UN OCHA acknowledges are besieged. This is the actual area of siege in Damascus alone. Um, they unlisted Moadamiya last year. Makes no sense. Uh, Moadamiya has been and still besieged. Uh, and recently, they unlisted Yarmouk while acknowledging that there are people still trapped in Yarmouk and they haven't reached them since March. Even UNRWA, the, the Palestinian agency, can't reach them. They don't explain why they don't consider it besieged, even though they can't reach it. Um, and they refuse to explain their methodology. And I, I have some, some thoughts about why. But uh, the listing of Deir Azor 
which they say is regime controlled and besieged by ISIS, um, has changed their statistics a lot. So now it looks like they reach a lot more people because Deir Ezzor, uh, the besieged area has a military airport and they can sometimes get convoys in here, in through the airport. Uh, if you ask someone from Deir Ezzor, they will say that they're besieged, but is both by the regime and ISIS because the regime is not using the airport to save civilians or to bring in food. Uh, they're extorting money out of people. If you have enough to pay, you can buy a flight out or you can buy, uh, the regime actually controls access points and they're not letting people out. So the UN characterization um, is really troubling and I think it's part of the problem and I think they've become complicit in, in these events. And so just to, to wrap up so we can move on to Q&A, I frequently keep in touch with people in the besieged areas and before this event, I reached out to several of them and I said, give me a status update. Uh, unfortunately, easier for me, nothing's changed. They're still besieged, and I wanted to uh, read the response from someone who's become a good friend of mine in Moadamiya. He said, the shelling haven't stopped, still no medicine allowed. Detaining civilians also is still ongoing, etc. Nothing changes, nobody cares. And that is what's happening. No one's caring and nothing's changing. And. Uh, I call upon the people in this room, I know there are a lot of governments here represented to do more um, at the UN level. New Zealand's not here, I don't think, but they were interested in pushing this forward and on our leaders to, to make this, and media especially plays a big role in making, um, making this an issue and making people aware. Uh, and with that, I will, I will wrap up. Thank you. <clears throat> Valerie, thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the person who we had invited uh, to talk about barrel bombs, uh, Mr. Raed Sala, the head of the, uh, the White Helmets civil, uh, civil Defense in Syria, uh, was unable to join us. So it falls to me to, to say a few words about this subject. And you know, frankly, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time describing uh, what these instruments of, uh, of uh, mass murder and mass terror are. Uh, they are um, unguided, explosive weapons, locally produced, cheap to put together, dropped from helicopters, and they are extraordinarily lethal. Normally fabricated from oil drums and gas tanks. The fuse detonates on contact, and the explosive in the instrument propels large quantities of red-hot items, including metal fragments, nails, ball bearings, fuel, and sometimes chlorine canisters. The strategic purpose of this weaponry is to prevent alternative non-ISIL governance to arise in areas not under the control of the Assad regime. Mass casualties and mass terror are the explicit desired effects. These devices enable the regime to reduce the cost of protracted aerial warfare, and it gives the regime an opportunity to introduce additional platforms uh, in the form of transport 
helicopters uh, that are not normally used in direct combat uh, operations. Uh, the eastern and northern suburbs of Aleppo have been the predominant targets, although these terror weapons have been used uh, across the country. Uh, as I mentioned, Mr. Saleh, unfortunately, was unable to join us today, but uh, in June of this year, he addressed an informal session of the United Nations Security Council. So since he's not here, permit me to quote just a few passages uh, from what he had to say. This is from Riyadh Saleh. Syrians are killed every day with various kinds of weapons, but the deadliest ones are the barrel bombs because of their indiscriminate nature. They destroy everything, including schools, bakeries, hospitals, houses of worship, and even cemeteries. Because of them, the sounds of helicopters hovering in the Syrian sky are enough to cause terror and panic among civilians. That sound means anticipating death without anyone knowing where the barrel bomb will fall exactly and whom it will kill. The moment sirens go off, we rush to the site of the barrel bomb, and we, barrel bomb attack and we try with our very modest equipment to search for survivors still under the rubble. More often than not, all we manage to dig out are the dead bodies and the severed limbs of our neighbors, friends, and sometimes relatives. The terror we face is double-fold because the Syrian Air Force has adopted a new technique when carrying out their attacks. It's called a double tap. The aircraft returns to the site of the attack minutes after the rescue teams arrive and people start to gather to rescue those who are still alive. The main purpose of this weapon is the collective punishment of the communities that live in areas outside of regime control. The regime wants to make their lives a living hell to convey the false message that they cannot live except under the rule of the Assad family. This is, of course, one of the main reasons that millions of Syrians have been displaced to neighboring countries, and it's a real obstacle to the establishment of effective institutions that can govern on the ground. As a patriotic Syrian, I never imagined I would one day ask for a foreign intervention in my country by land or air, but the lives of innocent women and children that we see dying in our hands every day compel us to ask for any intervention possible to stop the barbaric killing machine led by Bashar al-Assad. Before the strongest power on this planet, all I can do is ask that you awaken your conscience and tell me what you are going to do to stop these barrel bombs." Unquote. Needless to say, Mr. Saleh did not receive an answer. So under the rubric of civilian protection, we've been discussing medical neutrality, sieges, and barrel bombs. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the Assad regime is far and away the biggest offender, but it's not alone. Al-Qaeda-derived groups, such as ISIL and the Nusra Front, also take delight in targeting civilians. 
Obviously, it's incumbent on the United States and its regional partners to ensure, as best we can, that armed rebel groups, which are obviously not the Nusra Front, armed rebel groups that are supported repudiate extreme elements and comply fully with international law, even when murderously provoked. As the UN Secretary General put it in his most recent report on the implementation of UN Security Council 2139, and this, this is the 18th report of Ban Ki-moon, quote, indiscriminate and disproportionate attacks by all parties to the conflict, including through the use of barrel bombs and other explosive weapons in populated areas, remain by far the primary cause of civilian deaths and injuries. We have again heard of shelling of Damascus by armed groups and appalling reports of new airstrikes on the besieged area of Duma. Attacks on civilians must stop. Violations of international humanitarian law by one party to the conflict cannot justify in any circumstances retaliation and violations of international humanitarian law by another party. The international community, and in particular the Security Council, must take immediate action to end the daily violations of international law and the killing of civilians, unquote. Again, this was the 18th monthly report of the United Nations Secretary General, and 18 times the report has said essentially the same thing. Broadly then, what are the policy options for the Obama administration? And I'll conclude with this. In my view, protection of Syrian civilians is both a humanitarian imperative and a strategic necessity. There would be no doubt, in my opinion, about the humanitarian imperative if only the Assad regime survival strategy of collective punishment and mass murder were clearly, unmistakably, a matter of genocide. That would remove any question about the humanitarian imperative. By most accounts, it is not genocide. It is merely mass murder. The administration's position is that the never again dictum therefore does not really apply to Syria. We should, I think, just a personal opinion as a practical matter, set aside the humanitarian imperative approach at least until January 2017, just as a practical matter. Fortunately, there is, I think, a strong argument to be made for civilian protection in Syria as a strategic warfighting necessity. President Obama has said that the United States must degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL. He has put Americans, uniformed Americans, in harm's way to achieve this objective. ISIL used a safe haven in Syria to sweep 
through much of Iraq in June 2014. That safe haven had previously been a territorial vacuum created by Assad regime illegitimacy. That illegitimacy was brought about by a political survival strategy based on collective punishment and mass murder. That strategy is ongoing. It continues as we speak. Unless Russia and Iran force their Syrian client to abandon it, or unless that client disappears, regime collective punishment and mass murder will be a permanent fixture on the Syrian scene for as long as the eye, for as far as the eye can see. There are two main beneficiaries of this survival strategy. One is the extended Assad family and its retinue of Confederates. The other is ISIL. The convergence of regime and ISIL interests is not accidental. The regime wants to prevent the emergence of any civilized alternative to it. This is the purpose of barrel bombs and sieges. The regime wants ISIL to be its sole competitor for political power in Syria. This, it calculates, would be its ticket back to polite society. ISIL, meanwhile, relies on regime brutality to build its outreach to Syrians in a country where it has no natural constituency and to help sustain its global recruiting effort. It very, it very much wants the Assad regime to be its sole competitor for political power in Syria. Our administration acknowledges all of this, every single word of it. For a variety of reasons, it has refrained from throwing sand into the gears of the regime's murder machine. It continues to hold out the hope that somehow a political negotiations process will materialize. But how can negotiations take hold when daily massacres are the first order of business? How can ISIL be effectively countered when regime collective punishment and mass murder inflate its ranks? The choice facing the administration is not easy, but it's stark. Continue to accede to the wanton slaughter of civilians in Syria as the country empties itself of all inhabitants with the means and the motivation to leave all inhabitants, or complicate the ability of Bashar al-Assad to kill on an industrial scale. The administration seems now to grasp the futility of acceding. It is considering measures. It's considering measures designed to keep Assad from doing his worst. Russia's upgrading of its military presence in Syria no doubt complicates matters. One would hope that we are leaning very, very hard 
relentlessly, diplomatically, on Moscow and Tehran to get their client out of this filthy business. But one should not count on it. Winning the war against ISIL may now require a confrontation with powers that are enabling ISIL by supporting Assad. It did not have to be this way, but this is where we may be headed. My bottom line is this. Mass slaughter renders irrelevant all talk of a negotiated settlement, all talk about political transition arrangements. Daily atrocities serve the interests of ISIL. Civilian protection is the sole portal through which positive things in Syria, political negotiations, and the defeat of ISIL are possible. The United States and its partners have the means, far, far, far short of invasion, occupation, and strategic bombing to stop this regime from doing its worst. What is required is a presidential decision, ideally one reached in consultation with the Congress and with our allies. Protecting civilians, whether as a humanitarian duty or a war-fighting necessity, in my view, is the essential next step for the Western approach and policy towards Syria. Thank you. Okay, we've got about, uh, we've got about 23 minutes uh, for questions. We've got uh, at least one, maybe two roving microphones. Anybody wishing to, uh, to ask a question, please, uh, please so indicate. Uh, please identify yourself and uh, make the question as, as brief as possible. Tyler. Mike. Tyler again from uh, United for Free Syria. My question is for Valerie. Um, what alternatives, I guess, are there uh, other than the UN or through the UN process to get to these besieged areas? I mean, are there, are there any um, sort of alternative mechanisms in the works or being discussed? Thanks. Um, no, I'm not aware of anything that's being discussed in the works. I know that there was at the UN a, a move to send in a fact-finding mission as a first step. We know they love to do that. Uh, but talk of that, and New Zealand was, was supporting that. Um, talk of that died with Valerie Amos's departure and has not yet been picked up by her predecessor, uh, or by her, um, the, the current humanitarian chief. Uh, for, in my mind, having uh, UN OCHA and the Secretary General uh, acknowledge the crisis is a first step. Because right now, and obviously it's not the solution, but um, right now that designation of besieged and the numbers of besieged is the only thing that sets that group apart in UN reporting and that will be used for hopefully future war crimes trials. Um, the only thing that sets that apart is that besieged designation because beyond that we have over 4 million uh, 
hard to reach and over 12 million in need. And the, these numbers are tremendous. Um, I don't have the answer to that. I wish I did. But I know that it begins with uh, getting people to understand that this is happening and, uh, and going from there. Dr. Rolla, as you, as you look at this, the, the broad subject matter of medical neutrality, in your own work inside Syria, to what extent have you been able to uh, coordinate with the Syrian Red Crescent? What is, what is its role in terms, of, uh, in terms of delivering humanitarian assistance, in terms of, of trying to promote some, some measure of uh, medical neutrality? Mm -hmm. um. Uh, the issue of the Syrian Red Crescent is a slightly complicated one in a way. It has some very incredibly dedicated and courageous members, um, many of whom have lost their lives um, uh, over the last four years um, because just like doctors are targeted, aid workers are also targeted. Um, and so they have been put pr pretty much in the, in the face of fire. At the organizational level, it, is, it very much is a governmental institution. Um, and as a result, most of the aid that comes through the Syria Red Crescent, just like the one that comes mainly through the United Nations, goes through to government-controlled areas rather than to those who fully are in need. And as such, it breaks the humanitarian principles. The humanitarian principles are delivering aid to those according to neutrality, impartiality, according to need in an independent manner. And, um, and what happens, what's been happening over the four years is a breakage of that rule. Um, um, as stated by Médecins Sans Frontières, alongside many other agencies. Um, um, so so th there's that complication. Um, in terms of, um, I wanted to just say a little bit more about the effect of the attacks on the, on the, on, on the healthcare facilities, is that now you've got millions of Syrians without access to the most basic and fundamental healthcare. We had an eight-year-old girl who um, was injured by sh with shrapnel injury w with, when, um, when a barrel bomb had fallen. And it had taken her 17 days to reach uh, healthcare facilities with antibiotics available to try and treat the, in the infection that had happened as a result of the shrapnel injury. And unfortunately, when she'd arrived at our facility, her leg was gangrenous and she required an amputation. So you're talking about a country that's been sent back 200 years. We don't even have antibiotics to treat the most basics of, in of, of infections. And the European Commission two years ago, two years ago, said that 200,000 Syrians have lost their lives due to lack of access to health care. Okay? So these, aren't, these numbers aren't even in the numbers of, of the killed civilians that we document and talk about. And this was two years ago. And since then, and to now, over 70% of our hospitals are not functioning anymore. So you can imagine now that extra death toll from the fact that we don't have the most basic and fundamental um, of services available because of this attack on medical neutrality. What do you, what do you think that uh, your organization and the NGO, medical NGO community more broadly could do if if the provisions of uh, Security Resolution 2139 were actually respected and implemented, if you you know if you you think think in terms of somebody leaning hard enough on the regime to open things up to allow convoys to go through and so mm -hmm. forth, what 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 do you envision your organization and others actually doing if presented with an opportunity like that? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, um, my organizations, along with SAMS and, and, and so many Syrian organizations, are actually there on the ground delivering aid um, and, and able to reach people. But we do this at very great personal risk um, and with a weekly death toll of our, of our colleagues um, and not able to reach a lot of the hard-to-reach areas. Um, a, a little bit of a comment back to your question. Some of the hard-to-reach areas are being reached. They're being reached by Syrian NGOs. The problem that we have is twofold, is that the support um, being given by the international governments is going to the international NGOs, um, um, but they do not have the access on the ground. It's the Syrian NGOs who have the access. And so you have this discrepancy right now between those who have the funding, but they don't have the access. We have the access, but we don't have the funding. Um, so we are able to reach them. Um, but the other problem is it requires a change in the way that you're delivering aid. Um, we can't always take truckloads and lorries across across the zones, across conflict lines. Um, we need to ch think of um, uh, more creative methods, such as cash transfers, um, for especially for some of these hard-to-reach areas. So it requires um, um, changing this sort of rigidity of the NGO world and the humanitarian world. Um, but we can, we can absolutely reach so many more people if we're able to be given that um, the safe haven, if it were, of, um, uh, of, of lack of attacks. I have a couple of questions for Valerie, but before we leave you, could you could you describe, Dr. Rolla, what, what a creative operation looks like? How does it actually, how does it actually unfold? How, how does money or, or antibiotics or whatever mm. actually, actually move in a creative way? I think part of, just briefly, part of the problem with the humanitarian situation at the moment is that um, it's uh, the programming or the projects that occur are, are, are driven by the donor. And so they say, right, I want to spend my money on X, Y, or Z. But actually, the needs on the ground are very, very different. And so what you need is what, what should be a fundamental um, uh, principle, which is that you um, do a needs assessment on the ground and say, actually, what is needed in this area is X, Y, and Z. And, and this is dictated by the Syrians who are there. And they tell you what the best way of implementing this project is and using the Syrians on the ground who understand the culture and the context to deliver this, rather than it being imposed um, and being brought. And we, we, we have projects that, you know, they come to us and say, oh, this worked in Sudan or in Somalia, let's do it here. And you're like, okay, well, we, all our countries start with the letter S, but you know what? This isn't Sudan or Somalia, this is Syria. And actually, you need to be actually doing things in an appropriate way. Um, um, and so uh, I would go back to the fact that what, what is needed is building the capacity of Syrian NGOs um, who are there, um, who understand the culture, who understand the context, who have the access, um, and who know what the needs are, um, and, and, and allowing us to lead on that um, with the support and the expertise um, of, of the international NGO system. Thank you. Uh, we have a question. Yes. Microphone. It's coming around. Thank you. Um, I'm Lina Sergiatar from the Karam Foundation, and I want to thank you all and thank you, Ambassador Hoff, for a great panel and for speaking so much truth about what's going on in Syria. I am a Syrian American, and I wanted to just say a few words about Ambassador Hoff. He knows that I'm um, a very big fan. And we want to thank you, as every Syrian person and Syrian American, whenever you publish anything, they write about how there's almost nobody in, the, this, um, in, in Washington who speaks truth about Syria except for you. 
um, and we've watched you writing at every single point, giving your insight and your very valuable um, recommendations to the administration on what to do. And today I'm watching you, get, we've gotten to the point where you're actually using the argument of civilian protection as a war fighting necessity. I mean, it really feels like we're at the end of the line here of what we can tell or this, this administration on what to do to save the Syrian people. And so I'm asking you, um, as should we as Syrian Americans who are involved in advocacy and are involved in all these organizations and trying our best to help in whatever ways we can, should we give up on this administration now and move on and work on the next, on the next administration coming in, um, even though that means 17 more months of people dying by barrel bombs and by torture and watching the Syrian people die month by month and watching the evacuation of an con entire country into, across the world? Or what will your recommendations be for us as a community? Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for your very kind words. Um, my, my frank, direct advice would be do not give up on this administration. Do not give up on it. What I personally, it's just a matter of personal opinion, have given up on is the possibility of inspiring our current incumbent president, a person in whose administration I worked as a political appointee. Okay. I have given up on him personally being motivated by some sense of, of humanitarian imperative to intervene here, to do what I, what I describe as throwing sand into the gears of this murder machine. I, I, have, I have given up on that. Where I am trying to focus, you know, whatever persuasive capabilities I may have on this administration is on the war fighting aspect of it. He is our commander in chief. He has committed uniformed Americans to combat against ISIL. The greatest enabler of ISIL in Syria is the Assad regime. The main tool being used by the Assad regime to enable ISIL is collective punishment and mass murder. Frankly, I don't care which argument works in the end, as long as it works, as long as the United States with its partners takes steps not to invade the place, not to occupy the place, but to just make it harder for this regime to do a job that is very contrary to the interests of the United States and the other 59 members of the anti-ISIL coalition. Uh, as a practical matter, you cannot afford to give up because as you mentioned, there's another, whatever, 16, 17 months if you, if you just do a, a, a sort of straight line analysis of what Syria could look like 16 or 17 months from now without a fundamental change in direction, it's truly horrible. It's truly horrible. Look at, look at what, what we were talking about a year and a half ago. In uh, February 2014, when Resolution 2139 
was being debated a year and a half ago. 100,000 Syrians have died. This was, this was the, a big number that was used in the Security Council debate. By God, this is unbelievable. 100,000 people have died. Now the consensus number seems to be a quarter of a million, maybe more. Okay? What would it be 16, 17 months from now? So, so the idea of just simply writing off the Obama administration and saying, oh, let's, let's concentrate on whoever the successor is going to be. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's, uh, it's not a very practical or humane way forward. Don't give up the fight. Yes, I'm out. Microphone. Uh, Fred, I want to ask you about um, the possibility that Europe now, because of this huge problem that they have on their hands because of the flux of refugees, might put pressure and do something. I heard today that the Spanish uh, carried the British uh, proposal to the White House and they, they were asking if, if something can be done to have uh, expedited transition in Syria because this is the way to solve the problem of uh, refugees in Europe. Do you see the Europeans, because of the problem now is in their homes, not in their backyard, doing something to pressure for a political solution that they haven't done before. Mm. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's, a, it, it's, it's really a central question right now. I can, I can recall here in Washington two years ago, uh, after I joined the Atlantic Council, meeting with a, uh, meeting with a very senior European diplomat at, a, at an ambassador's residence here in, uh, here in Washington. And this, this diplomat happened to be rather forward-leaning on Syria, Western European diplomat. And uh, I, I asked him, you know, to what extent are your views replicated among your European colleagues? And he said, he said Fred, I've got to tell you. He said, I'll tell you the exact truth. Most Europeans, to include leaders, prime ministers, presidents, kings, really don't care about Syria as long as this problem stops at Turkey. That's almost an exact quote. Well, this problem is not stopping at Turkey, is it? And in my experience over the last several years, to include my time as a, as a US government official, the only European country that has come to President Barack Obama and said, come on, we've really got to up our game here. We are facing a potential catastrophe, has been France, period, full stop. If the Europeans want to do something to start taking a look at the source of the problem, their center of gravity right now, I believe, is President Obama. They need to be talking to the president about practical steps that can be taken to gum up this murder machine. And this is not just a matter of holding Uncle Sam's coat. People have really got to stand up and be counted because this this should not, even if it could be, it should not be something 
the United States does on its own. It's a little nervous, now I'm in. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> as a as a turkey hand, it's a European country. It's yeah. not in the European Union, but it is in NATO. Yeah. We handle it through the EUR Bureau at State, UCOM at, at the Defense Department, and I don't think there's been a louder voice among European countries, including Turkey, uh, than Turkey for all aspects of this. The security, strategic necessity to intervene in Syria, specifically to protect civilians and to allow refugees to one day at least have the hope of going home, um, as well as the humanitarian and compassionate one. They're, they are public about this and they're extremely direct. I can tell you how often I heard it when I was in office there until a year ago. So just one note, Turkey's there on that. We have lots of differences with them about how to pursue this with Syria but they sure are strong in calling for uh, American and world attention. No, you're, you're, you're quite right. My, my comments were really focused I on, know that. on Western, <laughs> Western Europe. I know that's something that... Um, but, uh, you know, uh, just, to, just to follow up on what you're saying, uh, the reason, the, reason uh, the Obama administration is even considering a procedure that would, under the best circumstances, replicate the effects of a no-fly zone in northern Syria is because of pressure from Ankara. This is something that the Turks wanted in return for giving, uh, giving the anti-ISIL air coalition use of uh, Interlake Air Base. So the only, the, the, this, is, this is the only reason as of right now while, why the administration is considering a certain procedure in the north of Syria that may make it difficult uh, for regime helicopters uh, to do their business. Anybody else? We have one way in the back. I'm at the roof. How are you? <clears throat> I was just asking you about the Arab leagues or the GCCs particularly. How strong are they? How influential are they on the administration? Why we have to look about Europe, about the Syrian American, where are the Saudis, Emiratis, they have the hugest lobby over here in DC. Why they are not supporting the Syria? Thank you. I'm sorry, the, the question is why are, why are the Saudis not? Yeah, yeah. Why the GCC countries here in the United States, they support Syria or Syrian crisis the way we as Syrian we hope them to do too? I, I, would, I would just say that over the, over the past week or 10 days, the, uh, the GCC countries have been, uh, you know, have been putting out a series of information sheets about how many, how many Syrians they are, they are hosting, the level of assistance, and all of this. I, I, think, as a, I think as a practical matter right now, the, uh, you know, the Saudis and, other, and some of their GCC partners are really, really focused on Yemen, okay? And Yemen itself raises some issues of civilian protection. I would never equate Saudi air operations in Yemen with what the Bashar al-Assad regime is doing. Okay, in Syria you have a situation where the targeting of civilians is the explicit objective it is, it is the strategic uh, end that the, uh, 
that the regime is, is trying to meet. Uh, in Yemen, could be all kinds of you know, targeting problems, but, but still, uh, the damage and the suffering of civilians in, in Yemen is, is unspeakable. And uh, hopefully there are diplomatic efforts uh, underway to, uh, to wrap that episode up. Valerie, just, just one for you before we wrap up. You mentioned, you mentioned a sort of statistical discrepancy uh, between your research and the United Nations in terms, of, in terms of the total number of people under siege, areas under siege. Why, why does that exist in your view and, and what's, the, uh, what's the policy significance of it? Yeah, the only, um, by nature, besieged areas are difficult to access for outside sources. So the only um, UN agency tasked with recording what's happening there is UNOCHA, and this feeds into the monthly Secretary General reporting mandated under the UN resolutions. Um, and there's no watchdog. There's no one to compare figures with. There's no one saying, hey, you're, you're not counting these people and they should be counted. And so that's what we set out to do with this report. Um, I believe that UNOCHA, I mean, I, I lay a lot of blame on them and the other UN agencies, but ultimately it's not their fault. It's because they're not empowered to do more by the Security Council, by the UN. Uh, they don't have armed forces. They can't make the decision to break the siege. So they, in my mind, have made the calculation that we either try and give no help or we work with the Syrian government and we get in some help sometime. What that has done um, at this point, several years in, uh, they must recognize that it's not working, it's not expanding their access overall, and what it has done is allowed the regime to turn their assistance into a weapon, because it can reject convoys when it doesn't want a population to receive it as a favor, it can let in a convoy. Um, so this is why I say they've become complicit, and I think that they're so far down this path that they don't know how, uh, and don't really see the desire, uh, as a desired endgame for, for switching paths, um, the policy significance of the UN agencies supporting uh, what I see as regime war crimes and crimes against humanity is pretty tremendous when they should be taking more principled um, stands. And I, I know it's, these are big bureaucratic organizations and there are a lot of individuals who especially work in their Damascus offices um, who I've spoken with some of them and are extremely unhappy. And you don't hear about all of the, these defections, but people leave it all the time because morally they can't deal with um, the way that their agencies have gotten in bed with the regime. Thank you, uh, thank you all very much uh, for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Please, uh, please join me in thanking Valerie and uh, Dr. Rolla. <laughs>